But we're picking up, as it were, from last week with a continuation of a reading that's all about how we're not our own, right? How we are the Lord's. Um, Remember last week in chapter 6, St. Paul writes to the Corinthians that they were sanctified. They were justified. They have chosen to be washed by Jesus. And then in verse 20, you are not your own, he says, for you were bought with a price. You see, the Corinthians had gotten so concerned about what they were permitted to do with their rights that they got extremely touchy if anyone infringed on that. And they were asking the wrong question. They were asking, what can I do? What can't I do? Those wrong questions. Rather than, what ought I to do to become closer to Jesus? To live more in alignment with his will? And so this week, St. Paul addresses the Corinthians and, and writes to them about what does it mean to serve God in whatever circumstance you're in. English theologian Richard Hooker, from just after the English Reformation, writes, The ways of well-doing are in number even as many as the kinds of voluntary actions, so that whatsoever we do in this world, and may do it ill, we show ourselves therein by well-doing to be wise. Well, if you can't parse through that old English, what Hooker is saying is that we are wise when we do the things in this world well that we're called to do, quite simply. And that's echoing what St. Paul says here. You see, last week we talked about how our property is not our own in Christ and our bodies are not even our own in Christ. But today we're going to talk about the fact that in Christ Jesus, as his followers, we're called to serve him, some in marriage, We're called to serve him in our labor. We're called to serve him some in singleness. And that those circumstances might change, but the constancy is that we're called to serve him in all those situations. But what does it mean? What does that practically mean? Let's take a look. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And the first thing that we're going to look at is... What matters? What matters? How do we live in accordance with God's will? Look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, so the first thing you should ask when you open up your Bible to a section like this is, okay, Paul, What matters are you talking about? What what are the matters that they wrote to you, right? Do you see that frames the whole thing? And if we just jump into this, it makes it seem, and some have interpreted this improperly, as seeing any kind of conjugal right or or marital um, relations as wrong, right? Any kind of sexuality is wrong, right? That's not what St. Paul's saying, (laughs) So we have to ask ourselves, what is he saying? What matters did the Corinthians write to him about? Well, nobody knows for sure. I have to give that disclaimer at first. But we have a pretty good guess. You see, there were those in Corinth that had 
established themselves as super apostles, right? They were the holier than thou ones. They were, they wanted to be not just examples of following Jesus, but they were heaping on themselves praises. I am holier than the rest of you. And why? Because they were single and celibate. Because they were single and celibate. How do I know this? Well, a couple of ways. There's some evidence of it in scripture, but we also uh, have evidence of it in some of the early church writings. You see, that's the advantage of being an Anglican. You can actually look to the early church writings and say, hey, what did, what did the guys in the first three centuries think about this? Other people can look too, but all too often don't. Um, there's a commentary written on this passage in the 360s. Uh, while Bishop, while uh, Bishop, the Bishop of Rome was Damascus I, the commentary is known as the Ambroiaster. Ambroiaster. And the commentary is written on this passage, writes, stirred up by the depraved minds of the false apostles who in their hypocrisy were teaching that marriage ought to be rejected in order that they might appear to be holier than others, the Corinthians wrote to Paul to ask him about these things because they were unhappy with this teaching. So, in a sense, this is the whole reason Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, you see. Because these false apostles had posed this problem to the church. And look, there's other evidence of this in Scripture. St. Paul in his epistle to Timothy, the first epistle, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, reads... Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who are concerned, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. You see, St. Paul addresses this multiple places in Scripture, that there are these people that are forbidding marriage and forbidding any kind of exercise of, of someone's sexuality within marriage, right? Saying that that made somebody holier. Do you see? That's the context to what St. Paul is writing about here. So when St. Paul says... At the, at the latter half of verse 1, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's saying multiple things. Number one, sex outside of marriage is verboten. Off limits. We've gone over that before in this series. Between a man and a woman, and only after holy matrimony is the place to exercise our sexuality. But number two, he's saying... It's not a bad thing inside of marriage. Do you see? He's pushing the other way, saying it's a good thing in marriage. We continue on. Look at verse 2. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife, this is verse 4, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. You see, sometimes people stereotype Paul as being prudish and puritanical. Sometimes we get that 
from the world, but that's not so. We just think that there's proper boundaries in accordance with God's law as to where we should use our sexuality. I love the 1662 version of um, the right for holy matrimony because it has this line in it. As the ring is being put on to the woman's finger by the man, he says, with this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. That might make you stand up and take notice, right? With my body I thee worship? Wait, what? what's going on here? Well, in the old Anglo-Saxon, the word worship is a combination of two words, worth and ship. Worth being all of yourself, ship being all of your being. So when we worship, we're bringing what is worthy before God in all of our being. And what St. Paul is here saying is that in such a way is a man to treat his wife. And in such a way is a woman to treat her husband, bringing all of they are. There are no rights in marriage. There are no duties in marriage. There's just love in marriage. Right? It's not a matter of what's mine and what's yours. It's a matter of what's ours, St. Paul's saying. And you see, the Corinthians were having trouble with this because they were scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, Paul. You're telling us that we are Jesus's, right? You're not your own. You're Jesus's. For you were bought with a price. Now, how can I both be Jesus's and my wife's or my husband's? It seems like there's, there's an issue of, of, of priority, right? So Paul's addressing that clearly here. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's not one or the other. It's in marriage you serve Christ by serving your spouse. And outside of marriage, you serve Christ in other ways. Do you see? That's what he's saying here. No man's to withhold his body or mind or heart from his wife. And no woman should withhold her body her mind or her, or her heart from her husband because the two are to serve each other in a mutual covenant of love. There's no sleeping on the couch in Christian marriage, according to St. Paul. There's no being in the doghouse in Christian marriage, according to St. Paul. That's not an option. Sex can't be used as a weapon or a tool to get what you want. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then, then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Obviously, there have been those that have abused this passage, right? There have been those that said that, um, you know, use this passage to justify um, one-sided submission or use this passage to justify blind obedience to one's spouse. Notice that's not what St. Paul is saying. This is in the framework of mutual submission to Christ and therefore to one another. That's the only way it works. That's why Christian, what we call exclusively holy matrimony, 
is different than what the world calls marriage. Right? And notice that this is all in the context of the original concept that it's a false assumption to think that it's more spiritual to be celibate. Right? That governs this whole thing. You know, also as a general rule in the, in the culture in Corinth, divorce was prevalent. And St. Paul takes that on here too. Because for holy matrimony between two Christians striving to follow Jesus, divorce is not an option. It's a real scandal how in the modern church we treat sexual sins on different levels. And we talk about homosexuality and, and acting on that on one level. And we talk about unfaithfulness or promiscuity on another level. We need to be clear as the church, sexual sin is sexual sin. And there's redemption for all of it. There's forgiveness for all of it. But let's call it for what it is, friends. Sexual sin is sexual sin, whether it's homosexual in nature or heterosexual in nature. Whether it's marriage or pre-marriage or post-marriage in nature. It's all sexual sin. And Jesus asks us to repent of it. In chapter 10 of today's gospel in Mark, Jesus addresses this uh, directly. The Pharisees come and they try to test Jesus and they try to get him on a technicality talking about a certificate of divorce that Moses wrote into the law. In verse 5, Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Just see, St. Paul is merely fleshing out Jesus Christ's own teaching here. And saying, what does this mean in regards to marriage, singleness, and divorce? What God hath joined together, let not man separate. Holy matrimony is something ordained by God. It's something just like being male or female ordained by God. There's no in-between. You know, there's a lot of confusion in our culture on that, too, today. How is it that we're so confused as a people that we can't tell male and female? How is it that we're so confused as a people that we don't see the plain words of Scripture regarding holy matrimony? It's permanent. These things are fixed and they're permanent so far that St. Paul goes to dealing with them, talking about those who are married to unbelievers. Because you see, that was a problem in the church in Corinth too, right? What happens if one person goes and becomes a Christian and the other doesn't? Well, what does Paul say? 
Should the person leave or divorce because the other person did not become a Christian? Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For, unbelieving, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, But if the unbeliever, unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether your husband whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What's Paul saying here? He sees two possibilities in the case that a believer marries an unbeliever. Actually, a believer is not supposed to marry an unbeliever. This is like, it's already happened, right? Because this is the early church. But what is he saying here? There's two possibilities if one spouse is an unbeliever, and that is that the believing spouse will be so active in his or her faith that she will convert or he will convert the unbelieving spouse just surely by being in their presence. Sadly, that doesn't always happen, right? What's the other possibility? Well, They'll be, that the believing spouse will be so ardent in their faith that the unbelieving spouse will be driven away. I can't take it. This Christian thing that you're doing, I can't do it anymore. And what does St. Paul say? If that happens, that happens. You see, there's no covenant there, in Paul's view, between a believer and an unbeliever. There's no way to have mutual submission because you're not both submitting to Jesus. So the whole thing gets fouled up. And many of us have experienced that or at least seen it in families, right? That's why we have to be so careful about who we marry as Christians. But it's also why we have to be so careful in how we deal with people who are divorced as Christians. Because we don't know the full story. What exactly is happening there? What was going on behind the scenes? You see, this is the part of the struggle for the church. That the church has to state strongly what is the law and the will of God. But on the other hand, the church has to minister to those that fall short of the law and repent and are covered in the mercy of Jesus Christ. Paul moves on, though, because it's not just about marriage. How about those who are laboring? How about those who are servants or slaves? There's an idea in the Corinthian church that one's spiritual liberty meant they didn't have to work anymore or were discouraged because they could no longer be a slave. You and I scratch our heads and say, wait, what? Why would you be discouraged that you could no longer be a slave? Well, first of all, St. Paul uses this word in Greek, melete, in verse 22, when he talks about this. Let's look at it. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freeman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a slave 
when called rather, is a slave of Christ. Here's that verse again, verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain. Now, this has been used wrongly to justify slavery. Is that what St. Paul is saying here? No. What St. Paul is saying here is that for those Corinthians, about a third of Corinth was slaves, for those Corinthians who were slaves and became Christians, be the best at what you can be where you are. Right? That, remember, there's this idea, if you belong to Christ, how can I belong to Christ and have another master? Right? So, you see, they were upset by the fact that how could I go to work? How could I work for my master when my new master is Jesus? And St. Paul is here saying, well, don't let that bother you. Try to do your best in your station, wherever you are. Try to obtain your freedom. Yes, freedom is better because then you don't have to serve two masters. And yet, you can still be a Christian and be a slave. It's strange for us to think about, isn't it? But remember, this is a completely different culture. And I don't have time to get into it today, but slavery in this culture, while not good, was very different than what we think of with the chattel slavery. It was more like indentured servitude. So Paul's saying, don't make yourself a slave, but if you're a slave, be a good Christian as a slave. Married, whether we're married or unmarried, whether we're slave or free, whether we're circumcised, which means you're a good observant Jew or not, you are Christ's, is what St. Paul's here saying. And finally, you're called to be Christ's own in singleness. What about those who are single or widowed or divorced? Don't waste your circumstance, St. Paul says. Look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, and that word can actually be translated virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy, who's trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. St. Paul here again is arguing to be faithful to Jesus no matter what your circumstance or state. And we can take St. Paul's words to counterbalance the other side here as well. If there was pressure for them to marry, St. Paul is saying, don't go with the pressure, go with what God's called you to. If there's pressure to not marry, he's saying it's not spirit, more spiritual to be celibate, go ahead and get married. It's better that you, that you get married and not sin than not marry and sin. I've heard in the church countless times from widows and widowers, divorcees and unmarried singles talk about just how difficult it is 
in the church to be in those places. Friends, we need to do better at including people who are trying to follow Jesus but are in these different circumstances. Not everybody's called to be married. You know, they might want to be set up, but, you know, you might ask them before, before you set them up with somebody, right? Not everybody's called to be single. And the church is not right when we try to force people to be single or celibate, although that doesn't happen so much anymore. St. Paul's stealing, steering a middle path here, saying, serve Christ as you're called. Look, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties in verses 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. Notice what Paul's saying. Are any of these anxieties or worries good? No. He's saying, I don't want you to be anxious about these things, but to be faithful to Christ in your circumstance, whatever it may be. I have a seminarian friend who travels to Central America and Africa. In fact, he's just getting back from Africa. Um, and he does that because he's single. He doesn't have the, the, the care of a family. He's able to go be a missionary. He's able to go help and, and be in orphanages. I have a friend who is my roommate in seminary who's now a priest, Drew Schmatzer. Some of you have fought, met Father Drew who has gone from Malta to Egypt to Dubai as a priest in the Anglican Church. Again, he's not called to be married, at least right now, and therefore he's able to pick up and do those things. I, I would never be able to do that with my responsibilities. But I'm called to be here as your vicar, you see. One's not better than the other. That's what Paul's saying. And you're called to be here at this point. You're called to be part of this body. You're called to be part of Christ's church here. How are you, whether you're married or single, how are you engaging the body of Christ right now? Hard as it is to believe, this life is short and an eternal one awaits all of us. How are we preparing how are we following Jesus? How are we living out our lives to the best of our ability in Christ Jesus in our circumstances, in our jobs, in our relationships? St. Caesarius, the Bishop of Arles in the fourth century, writes, those who practice physical sterility should observe fruitfulness in souls, and those who cannot have earthly children should try to beget spiritual ones. Isn't that beautiful? Those who practice physical sterility should observe fruitfulness in souls. He's talking about celibacy there, right? So, and those who cannot have earthly children should try to beget spiritual ones. How are we begetting spiritual children, friends? Or if we're married and have children, how are we passing the faith along to those children? He continues, all our deeds are children. If we perform good works every day, we shall not lack spiritual offspring. You see, this is the proper way to look at good works 
not as meritorious for our salvation, but as offspring, as things that help ourselves and help the church and help advance the kingdom of God, most importantly. Wherever you are in life, by choice or chance, seek to do the will of our Lord Jesus, living into the fact that you're not your own, but you were bought with a price. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.